of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at SpoilerCountry at gmail.com. With the spoiler verse unite, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kendrick Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Boom Studios, John Allison, isn't it? It is. And he comes on and talks with Jeff about his series Wicked Things and about his webcomic career. And this guy's been doing this for a long time, man. He started his first webcomic back in 1998. Wow. Wow. That's when you were dreaming of doing webcomics. Yeah, that's. that's five years before I started my webcomic, and I was pretty, I was pretty, uh, pretty early on the game too. That's a long time. He, was, he, he used to, um, he ran Keenspot back in the day, which was a big deal for the webcomic people. If you know what Keenspot was, and uh, yeah, he came on and talked with Jeff about all the things he's doing. It was pretty cool. That's cool. Uh, do you miss doing webcomics? I do actually. I really do. I miss doing the, I miss the daily grind or the weekly grind of, of making jokes and doing stuff. It's a lot of fun. It, it really is. It was a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. You did it for a uh, long actually, time though. Uh, 13 years, yeah. yeah. I, I was actually showing my, one of my buddies last night um, some of my old webcomics, and he was laughing pretty hard. I was like, why don't you still do this? And I'm like, because I don't have time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no no time at all. You can't do it between podcast, uh, yeah. spoilerverse.com, and then five kids, and then you just moved. <laughs> and work. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm moving in a week. Uh, it's, yeah. just, it's kind of a – for much – as 2020 has been a weird year with the pandemic, the election, all the stuff that's been going on, uh, you and I have made some huge advances in our yeah, personal huge uh, changes. Not in only in our life. in our private life, our personal, our our public life, and our career life. It's yeah, kind of yeah, nuts. It's been, it's been interesting. It's been very sure. interesting. Well, enough banter of you and I. Why don't we sit back and listen to John Allison in his own words? Let's do it. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we had the fantastic Mr. John Allison. How are we doing, Mr. Allison? I'm very well, thank you, Jeff. How are you? Oh, I'm doing quite well, just in, in experiencing the weird world that we live in right now. Exactly. Well, you know, we just got to live with it now. It's become boring. It's weird, hasn't it? Normality would now become peculiar. We wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. Yeah, I, I imagine once everything opens... Uh, and having everyone without their mask on will suddenly be shocking. <laughs> It'll be a weird um, experience for everybody. Exactly. I think it will. I think there'll be a, a strange sense of, you know, like a, a lack of rules more than anything. I don't know what I'm going to do with no rules anymore. <laughs> hey, I get the feeling that some of this will carry over and some of us will still probably be wearing our mask and carrying hand sanitizer for some weeks to come after. I think it's, yeah, it's paradise for the germaphobe who all of a sudden all their behaviors are sanctioned, aren't they? 
Yeah, and I must say, as, as, as definitely one of those germaphobes, the fact that I don't have to shake hands anymore is actually kind of comforting. <laughs> oh, I'm loving not having to hug people. It's great. Yeah, just leave me alone. Well alone. <laughs> See, there are benefits to plagues. <laughs> <laughs> so you're living in um, England, is that correct? That's right, yes. Now, from my understanding, things have been handled better over there than they have in the good old US, I imagine. We're in the, we're mid-table in sporting terms, you know, in terms of looking after it, some sometimes things seem to be done well. Sometimes they seem to be done very incompetently. And then we have to, you know, we look at New Zealand and we think we're doing terribly. And then we can look at other countries. I couldn't name them, obviously. That would be impolitic. And say, no, actually, we're not doing too badly. Well, it is nice to know that as a um, fellow uh, nation and, and, and our prior country that connected to our country, that we're both on some level equally incompetent in some ways. <laughs> it's, it's in the DNA, you know. There's a lot of generations of incompetency going right back to kind of like Stone Age times, you know. It's, it's kind of comforting to see that and go, hey, we may be bad here, but that's where we get it from. Our parents right over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so how has this pandemic been doing for you cre uh, creatively? Do you find yourself more or less able to write as you normally did? Do you find this being home a lot constraining? Well, I mean, I worked from home. I have worked from home for 17 years. So actually just being in the house a lot wasn't weird for me. One thing that was hard, it was a little bit hard to um, be inspired. Like I could still like churn like the artwork out on the, on the projects that I draw myself. But in terms of coming up with new ideas, you know, some things seem a bit incongruous in, in the weird new world. And some things seem too downbeat. You know, you feel like you ought to be presenting some kind of positivity to people who are feeling a bit you know, down in the mouth, you know, if things aren't going so well where they are. So I've kind of gone back through my file of old ideas that I'd half finished and kind of dug those out and polished them up rather than coming up with new brand new stuff. Well, that seems to be a hallmark of a lot of your work that it does seem fun and upbeat, especially at a time when a lot of comic books are in the realm of grim. Your hmm. comic books are, do seem to be far more upbeat and friendly. I think of myself as an entertainer, you know, and I worry that if I'm not entertaining people or if I send them away in a bad mood at the end of something, that I've failed them in some way. Well, but I think comic books like yours, and we'll go over several of them uh, in a little bit, do serve an important purpose. I think pe people feel a need to have that cathartic release that they find in reading better, more upbeat stories. Oh, sure. Like... I, I, you know, I always have things like there's loads of movies that I will go and see and I'll, I'll come out of it. And, you, you know, you're really low at the end of it, especially if you go to the like art house movies. You're not going to get a traditional kind of kiss off friendly ending. You might come out feeling really low. And I always feel like with a comic book, you, you really should send somebody away kind of high on the hog rather than feeling low. But that's just a sort of personal approach. Yeah, I completely agree. There was a movie that came out um, a couple months ago. I'm sure most people know of it. The Bill and Ted, uh, third, the third movie from Bill, Bill and Ted franchise. Mm -hmm. And I almost think that pre-pandemic, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did watching it in August, where I just felt a need to have a movie like that. And I felt the same way reading your uh, Wicked Things comic book. Oh, thank you. Now, your career started writing a webcomic called Bobbins. What got you into writing comics to begin with? And why did you start with webcomics? Well, I wanted to be a comics writer, but in the UK, in the it's kind of the early 90s when I was a teenager, you were so far away from the American comics industry and the UK industry was so small that what opportunities you might have had, you know, it was almost like a pipe dream to even think you could work in the industry doing like small press stuff at that point. So 
web comics, I was an early kind of, I was able to design web pages. I'd worked on the, my university's kind of online presence. So I could do like code web pages. So I, I got to making some strips just when I finished university and I was kind of trying to get a job, nothing much to do. And, and I made those, I put them online and I just kept putting them online once I'd started working. And, and that was it. There wasn't really a webcomic scene. There were maybe sort of regularly updated webcomics at that time, but it was lots of other people were having the same idea at the same time. So you, you became part of a burgeoning thing. Now, the comic book that you seemed like you transitioned from webcomic to print was Giant Days, which was also published from Boom, correct? That's right. Yeah, I think Bad Machinery might have been my first kind of direct market book. Maybe there was one, one or two volumes of that out from Oni before Giant Days came out. But certainly my first monthly book, my first kind of, you know, US format comic that comes out every month was Giant Days. Yeah. So why did you why was Boom pub- the best publisher for Giant Days? It just fit with what they were doing perfectly. It was very lucky, really, because I might have taken it to somebody else at an earlier stage if it had been ready. But it just happened that when I was ready to kind of stop drawing it, work with another artist, Boom had started doing kind of creator-owned books through Boombox. Ryan North had done a book called The Midas Flesh. And obviously there was Lumberjanes, but it was quite a different lineup in that section of the company at the time. And I just thought, well, they're doing creator-owned stuff. I, I knew Shannon Waters a little bit from doing covers for Marceline and the Scream Queens, the Adventure Time spin-off book. So I went to them and I went to Shannon and she kind of bit my hand off, really. It was very, <laughs> very kind of her to bite my hand off on that occasion. Yeah. But it was just a good fit. And it was somebody who understood what I was trying to do perfectly. So that worked out really well. It must have, because Giant Days uh, won an Eisner Award and four Harvey Awards, if my memory is, um, is correct. Now, how did that affect you as a writer? I mean, not a lot of writers get that level of success and recognition that quickly or that early. Did it change either with the level of confidence that you had going forward? Did it change maybe how you approach your comic book? What, what is it like to get that level of recognition? Well, I would take issue with the fact that I, it was early because I think I was 15 years into my career kind of as a successful cartoonist, I think, when I actually won the Eisner. So it wasn't really early. I felt like it was a slap on the back for a lifetime, kind of a lifetime achievement award, really, more than a kind of being a, a young upstart. It's, winning awards is it's nice, but at the same time, it's confusing because once you've won the award, if you don't win it the following year, which you probably won't, <laughs> you have effectively fallen from your plinth. So I mean, that's, I mean that sincerely. It makes you kind of second guess yourself a little bit. It's lovely to be recognised, but at the same time, when you are when you do win, and I won two Eisners in one year, or I and the rest of the Giant Days team, I have to say, I've yet to snare one just on my own. So which might say something. But seriously, you know, you question everything. I was delighted. And I also thought, how on earth do I follow that up? So is there a concern of peaking then that you felt at this moment, this was like, this is the height. And where do I go from here? It's more a sort of personal kind of second guessing of yourself. It's like, well, that was the thing that people liked the most. And when I came, when I started, I was just, you know, kind of making it up really with no frame of reference you know it just happened that was the thing I made of all my series that people really liked so then you think well can I do another one that people will like that much and the answer is probably no <laughs> but 
but why should but again it's somebody else's turn at that point you know like you you have to accept that you have had your turn in the spotlight you've had your little moment in the sun you should retreat back a little bit and <laughs> let somebody else take a solo you know in the middle of the stage oh, I mean, that's actually a great way to look at it but once but at least you did the important thing which was once again you're continuing writing you wrote you're now writing wicked things for boom what inspired the creation of wicked things I wanted to, having done Giant Days, which was kind of, that was me doing a comic sitcom. I tried to make it like a sitcom you'd watch on TV. You know, every, although there were overarching plots for multiple issues, really there was also an A plot for every single issue where it was kind of a done in one. And there were lots of other TV formats that I wanted to attempt to turn into a comic book. And one of them that I'd been looking at for maybe sort of 12 years and never really managed to do was procedural crime and so i had characters from other series that i could use for things which i find useful and so i i kind of worked out how i would do my procedural crime series i wanted to do it it was a little bit like the mentalist and shows like mm. that you know the kind of quirky procedurals not really your, your bob on law and order kind of thing but that's really what wicked things is it's my attempt to do that kind of thing now have you ever seen the tv show monk Oh, yes. Every episode. I, I must say, I love that series a lot. And then once again, it, for a show about murder, it really is entertaining and fun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is. And, it, you know, that's I mean, it's funny how murder is the universal currency of television. It's a bit peculiar, really. You know, what's the one thing that everybody likes? Murder. Yes. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot you can do within that kind of that sort of sandbox. And you can go all over the place, really. So, so you think there's something about at least very at least western culture that we think that we just need to watch shows on murder that somehow to release maybe some sort of aggravation or anger that we're feeling during the day well it might be i mean i don't know it's it just seems to be something i think it in the end it's a sort of it's an easy driver of narrative you know like it's a shocking thing that needs setting right it's the ultimate crime it's the crime that we you know or perhaps with a, maybe there are one or two that are worse that you can't really put on television because you know, they aren't escapist but murder always seems to have been a you know, a foundation stone of drama. And so, yeah, there are lots of things you can do around it. But yes, it probably is a, a response to our kind of civilized society, our inherent desires to hit someone over the head with a rock. <laughs> well, I mean, it, your series Wicked Things does seem to also be threading that needle. Once again, there is definitely murder in it. But once again, you're bouncing it off with a lot of fun and entertainment. Is, is it, How hard is that needle to thread? It's really hard. I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend I just sit there with a big box of bonbons. You know, it was <laughs> awful. I had to tie myself in knots with every issue because I had to kind of create a character who was resilient enough that they weren't bothered just by the kind of the visceral horror of murder. You know, they have to be able to turn a blind eye to it in the same way that, you know, Monk or or whoever does. They've got to be a little bit unusual. They've got to be a bit weird because most people wouldn't be able to take that. You've got to kind of brush some realities under the carpet when you write about that sort of thing because i know speaking personally well my brother was a cop um, and he worked all kinds of horrible cases and it's like he had to kind of turn a part of himself off i think a little bit and so you know i had to, i understood that was a part of the deal well the character you created and i'm probably going to butcher the, the how do you pronounce it is charlotte Lottie Grote? Am I pronouncing Grote, it right? Yeah, yeah, it's just Grote. Yeah. It's, all right, uh, good. I, I usually bat like zero in how I pronounce names, unfortunately. <laughs> but all right. So she first, she's a detective and she first debuted in Giant Days. 
So, as a reader, do they need to read Giant Days to get wicked things, in your opinion? Oh, Charlotte's history goes back even further than Giant Days. She's a character from a series I did called Bad Machinery, and then I did a couple of cameos in Giant Days, because Giant Days ran for a lot of issues. I could just, uh, by the end, I could just do whatever I wanted. You know, there, there were options open up to you when you've got, you know, si- you know, 60 issues of something in total to fill. So, no, they don't. Absolutely not. In fact, that's sort of the foundation stone of my work is that if a title of a series is different to another series, you shouldn't have had to have read the other series. If you do, you may get some little treats out of knowing the the joins. But I think it's very bad to demand that people kind of experience all different parts of your work because people have limited time, limited money, limited energy. I I totally agree with you. I mean, I know... Basic rule of thumb, and as someone who's done some writing myself, the idea is always you got to assume that whatever issue you have out there is the only issue or the first issue a reader has ever read picking up that comic book. And I think, well, yeah, in comics, I don't think we trust that people like. There's a point when comic companies stop trusting that people would pick up issues, you know, seventy four or something, and be able to say, yeah, fine, I'll just kind of jump on here and, and see what's happening and get used to it, you know. But I, re- I really liked that feeling in the 80s where you'd arrive in the middle of a run of something. You wouldn't really know what was going on, but the comic would, it didn't challenge you to the extent that you were so out of your depth with those 22 pages of story that you couldn't work out roughly what was going on. Yeah, I, I, and also, just when you live in the internet time of the internet now, if you don't know something, you really can just look it up if you exactly, really need to. Yeah, yeah it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have heard people complain about, you know, issue number 103 or whatever is a bad jumping on point. I'm thinking to myself, go online. I guarantee there's a wiki somewhere that'll give you a heads up in about five minutes what happened. And very rare few comic books are that complicated. Exactly. Think when you meet somebody for the first time, like you start working with them, you don't know everything about their life, do you? With the second that you meet them, you, you have to meet them in the middle of their life. And then, you know, if you're interested, you kind of go back and find out what happened in the past or you just muddle along kind of with their their current existence. I don't I think it's quite a human experience. I don't see why it should seem so alien to people. I completely agree with you 100 percent on that one. I agree 100 percent. And, you know, most things, I mean, it's not like you're jumping into on page like 800 of like War and Peace or something where it's like, oh my God, there's so much complexity. You know, once again, it's a story. You can jump in, get, get the sense of it. Batman's a pretty straightforward story, usually. <laughs> and, you know, bad guy, superhero, you know. But one thing I do find about Wicked Things is that it does seem like your character of Charlotte has been allowed to grow a bit as the stories, storylines have grown with her. Yeah, it's really important. I think. If there's no growth and no change, I get bored quite quickly. I find, like, I started really wanting to do, like, newspaper strips because I wasn't sure I could ever be a comic book writer, but I knew I could write jokes. And But there's something quite weird about the never-changing world of strips or the incredibly glacially paced changing world of strips. Like, something like Luan does change, but it takes, you know, like, 20 years for somebody to kind of get out of high school. Yep. Now, with with Lottie, is there ever a concern when you're change or developing your character and aging your character that you that the character may change or be in a way that the readers may not connect to as well, or is that something that you just kind of trust in yourself and the reader to just follow along? 
No, I think that's definitely a possibility. I think it's really possible. It's something that I think about all the time and I can't ever be sure that I haven't done it because I'm so close to the material that I don't, I might be the last person who knows that I've kind of turned a character into a monster or what was cute <laughs> when they were like a child detective in Bad Machinery and, and her little appearances in Giant Days might not be cute when they're an adult. But to me, that's just interesting. You know, and you have to surround them with characters who kind of, will make sure that they don't just drift into kind of monsterhood, really, because I think any character who's kind of a, a, a solo kind of force of nature, if knew them in real life, probably would be a monster. Now, when you're making that, those determinations, is that simply a gut check, or is there someone that you have who you read, you have like uh, uh, read it first and say, you know, this is working, this is not working, maybe you've gone a little too far on this part? The person that I trust the most with my comics is my girlfriend of nine years to be honest with you like she has a sense she's not a massive comics reader but she has a really good sense of what it when things are kind of veering into kind of darker waters you know she'll say well this is getting quite you know she sees it again before I do she'll see that she sees the darkness within me <laughs> before <laughs> I see it so like she's she's got a really good eye for spotting things that when you're deep in the comics and just deep in comics as a medium, perhaps you don't see anymore because you're so used to kind of heel turns and, you know, the grim and gritty kind of aspect of things. If you've read too many Frank Miller comics, you're not going to notice <laughs> when you've started to veer towards the dark side. <laughs> That's very true. And I think what works well with your comic book as well is that the humor you, you, you put in the comic book does allow you to handle the darker elements better in my opinion thank you yeah i, and, I try and, yeah i try and I, th and, I, and I think the first issue had a great scene near the beginning you have lottie's mother and she doesn't seem to believe the stories about lottie's crime solving and she says they used to print anything uh, they used to print anything though is that like not only was that i thought a funny scene but also it's got kind of like a fake news like reference as well yeah it's a little bit of both it's like you know yeah exactly people just believe what's most convenient for them to believe and i think that, that's as true of fake news as it is just if you had a daughter who was always out solving crimes and she was never really home even though she was only 14 or whatever in those stories but she was out like in, in like mansions kind of like kind of trying to hunt down corrupt businessmen and things it, yeah i think you either you would go crazy or you just go that's not really happening i don't believe that's <laughs> happening at all yeah, and I think the other thing you do was to make Lottie, I think, feel fully rounded out was that her reaction to not being, or what she thought originally she was not going to be in the National Solver magazine, where she's like, ah, that's stupid anyway. But suddenly when she's in it, it suddenly it seems to be like everything to her. And not only do I think that's a very real response, but kind of made me think about Lottie a little bit and why she does what she does. And obviously, I mean, she's a good person, but is it also like ego? Wait a bit. Yeah, she, yes, she's tremendously vain. I think it's really important. I think most people who kind of excel in their areas have both, you know, an enormous ego, but it's vast and also incredibly fragile. And they have to both preserve that gigantic, fragile thing and, and maintain it in order to continue to kind of exist in their universe that they do. And that's kind of what the whole series is about, really, what happens when your balloon gets popped to that extent. Yeah, and but also though, is there so when she is going ahead and solving some of these and solving these crimes, is she feeling compassion as well for the victim, or is it more her own curiosity and being able to solve the crime? 
I think she does. No, she is a compassionate person. She wouldn't do it if she wasn't compassionate. You know, like she has a strong sense of justice. And that's like her signature move is just to point at someone with a big jacques. You know, she believes in right and wrong and, and straightening things out. That's her whole thing. She wants ought to impose order upon things, I think, as much as anything. You know, like she's, is she like lawful good? I can never remember what the different categories are, but I, <laughs> I have categorized her. She's, you know, she just wants the world in order. Really? Yeah, I'm trying to think that you mentioned like this is lawful good, chaotic good. I must admit, I know the terms, but for the life of me, I don't understand the differences. <laughs> I don't know what a chaotic good is, actually. Yeah, exactly. Like, I've been through all these things a few times recently to try and work out. I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons really as a kid, so I don't really know. You know, I don't, can't immediately kind of flip to what these things are and just, you know, organize everything very quickly into boxes. But she is, she's a really straight shooter. That's what she is. You know, she's like a lawman. She's like Batman. When I think of her in my head, I think of her like Batman. So she's basically dealing with the same kind of issues of justice and right and wrong as Batman does. So if she never got any credit for it, would she still be doing it? I think that's sort of what, well, that's an interesting question. Now, I think she can't do anything but do this. I think it's in her. I think the desire to sort in this way is is in her. And so she'll do it when she's, you know, been forced to make endless cups of tea and coffee. She'll still be trying to solve crimes at the same time rather than just, you know, letting people walk all over and having an easy life. You know, she could have had an easy life and she probably wouldn't have ended up in the situation she is there. She's obviously clever. She could just have ridden that all the way through school but she didn't she went out and tried to fix the world instead now every this there's a thought that every character has a bit of the writer of that writer in them is that Mm -hmm. the bit of you that's in uh, lottie the part that you know there's nothing she does this thing there's nothing else beyond that she can do other than solve crime because that's same thing with you maybe as, as a writer that's an interesting question. Like, I, I can see the parts of myself in most of my characters, and I don't know what which part of me is in Charlotte. I don't know. She's a weird, wild question. I, like, she's some part of my id that I don't really understand. I kind of, I, I when I'm writing, it makes perfect sense. But I don't look at my life, and I can't see. And I can see from most of the other characters, I can see bits of myself in them. And with her, it's like... Where is this emerged? <laughs> so, I mean, is, is there anything or another story or character or person that helps you find that voice for uh, Lottie? Again, like the story of Lottie is like she, in one of my web comics, I had a gap in one of the panels with Lottie's sister. And I thought, Do you know, what? I could just maybe she's got a sister. I haven't really thought about this before. I would do things very quickly. I would write, you know, very off the cuff. And so I just drew a, a little kind of little kid she's nine in that story with the the really heavy fringe the heavy bangs and she came there was a little snarky comment there and i was like oh wow that's something a little bit different isn't it there's room for development here and so she was just born out of nothing she appeared out of nowhere and, and i don't know where that voice comes from and again most of them i do know where it comes from that one i don't know i don't know <laughs> i just thought here's a, a little girl i drew a little girl who was very aware of what was going on. And sometimes you'll walk past a kid, you know, just when you're out and about in the supermarket or whatever, and you'll hear a little voice pipe up and say something that sounds like something, you know, somebody of 40 would say. 
And I can remember that I heard I was out with someone, and I think we'd gone to visit a castle in Wales, and a, a little kid, she just piped up with some really kind of old lady kind of phrasing. And sort of, an only child often will come up with these things just because they've been socialised with adults the whole time. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of a, that's a thing. I, I think that's what I tucked away. It was that sense of a child who could deal with an adult world sort of on its level, but with the, you know, the energy and enthusiasm of a child. And so now, yeah, like you say, she's an adult. And it's a kind of weird kind of curdled child actor kind of thing that changes her as a character altogether. And that's why I like the kind of fish out of waterness of wicked and- things. And I think it's really kind of interesting because once again, a character like her who w- will have, you know, soft, you know, soft cases as a younger individual and definitely seemed like a prodigy as she gets older, I guess it, there's a sense of there's more people like you out there in the world as well. as we find the other sleuths in the store that are introduced. Is that concerning for her? I think so. Yeah. I think the whole idea was in Wicked Things that she sees all of a sudden that she's not that special when she's out in the world you know like again in the cases like the police cases that she solves in wicked things she doesn't really properly solve them like i think one of the cases again i don't want to do too many spoilers but really she she's not that effective she can do some of her little tricks work in an adult setting and some of them don't work at all she's not quite there the idea is of somebody who's really got to find their feet again having kind of leveled up you know, like I like the idea that she would eventually get there, but she'd have loads and loads of setbacks and the setbacks would be what were interesting and would turn her from a child prodigy into a functioning adult. Is it also a bit of a wake, wake up call for her to, to find out that the other sleuths do have a certain superiority complex or apathy to them? Is that a wake up call for her to, to be careful of going down those same um, pathways? I think, well, I used them in the first issue for contrast, really, in that the way they behave isn't that different to the way she behaves. It's just she's kind of charismatic and they're kind of rich and aloof. But really, she has the same exact same sense of superiority. And I don't think she notices. I don't think she realizes that those people aren't all that different from her. That's why little Claire is there in the same story. And Claire is kind of your every woman. She's a, you know, she's Lottie's able helper but you know she can look and think well my friend isn't that different to these people really but then she gets on with everybody so she in the end she gets on with the other kind of snooty euro sleuths anyway and i did also uh, when i was reading this the story i felt that claire was very much the watson of the series yes she is yeah she's you know she admires charlotte she's been friends with her for a long time she kind of understands she understands a little bit about charlotte's humanity and so that helps, you know, that makes her a good sidekick because, you know, she can, she w- isn't going to be driven away at any point by the kind of Sherlock Holmes eccentricities. You know, she's seen it all. She knows where all the bodies are buried, so to speak. <laughs> and also another good character, because there's a lot of good characters I found in Wicked Things. I think, once again, I think it was beautifully written. Another character I did like a lot was the character of Bulldog, who, you know, this big, tough guy who's also this chess player with two daughters. And it's definitely one of those situations of making your initial assumptions and finding out what the character really is underneath all that. I think Bulldog is another great example of that in that series. Oh, thank you. Yeah. He's yeah. I liked writing him. I liked him. I could sort of, again, he was another one where I could sort of see him straight away and I was pleased to explore him a little bit. And yeah. And it's, I found it interesting, his relationship with Lottie 
who's I mean, he's a nice, he's an interesting role model, even though he's kind of also a criminal a little bit. He's the sort of father figure. I mean, again, it's never mentioned in Wicked Things, but Lottie's father has been out of the picture for a really long time. And so any kind of father figure, and there are a couple of father figures in the series. And so there's Dennison, Detective Inspector Dennison as well. They're both father figures. And and she's a sort of plugging this gap, you know, in her kind of psyche, really. Psyche may be the wrong word here, but I wanted there to be a few fathers in there who, who you know, and she's trying to find something that she needs out of both of them. And also, uh, is the character of Miyamoto's son, am I pr- probably pronouncing that wrong, uh, Miyamoto-san? No, that's right. Oh, okay. Points for me again. <laughs> uh, once again, is he, was he supposed to, at least in her mind, to be become that figure? Yes. Again, yeah, that's it. He's kind of an idealized father. You know, he's the, the ultimate detective. He's a kind of perfect father, if you like. And then when she meets him and he kind of rejects her, there's a little kind of grain of, you know, this isn't actually a very realistic way to kind of fill this little gap in your life but it's just something that she has a real need for and i think it was also what happens to him without giving any too much away provides a very interesting twist for lottie how seriously does lottie take the situation she's now in after what happens with miyamoto-san she's oh incredibly seriously incredibly seriously because she's in a situation she can't get out of it's like it's like a trap i wrote the series really to be like a manga and so you know, like the, you would roll this problem over and over, and that's the problem that kind of doesn't really get solved while you're solving all the cra- all the cases at the same time. Yeah, sorry, I've, I've lost my thread a little bit here, but uh, sorry, you might have to repeat the question. Sorry, I've, uh, I've right. forgotten what I was saying. No worries. So, with, with what happens with Miyamoto-san? Once again, I, I don't without um, spoiling anything, and where Lottie is involved with that, or at least assumed to be involved with that. How does she, how does that impact her? And how seriously does she realize the situation that she's now in because of that? Or what she could be accused of now because of that? Oh, she takes it incredibly seriously. Yes, she does. She realizes she's in trouble. Again, she's stepped into the adult world. And the second she does, she's in trouble. That's like the curtain coming down on her old life. You know, she's crossed over. She wants to be seen as the best teen detective. And she's made it to the awards, and all of a sudden now you're you're playing the real game against the real players. You know, you're not just in your town running around kind of chasing ghosts and vampires and stuff. You know, like she's on the the main stage, so she takes it incredibly seriously. And because she's on that stage, she now has true repercussions of, of what can happen, depending on if she doesn't solve this. Correct? That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's it. There's fine. You know, there's there are actual repercussions. You know, like she's not in the child detective world anymore. So, once again, with all detective stories, the classic ones, such as yours, there's multiple different threads that are being handed out to your your readers. I imagine as the story goes on, all these will start getting tied, all tied into each other? They do and they don't. Now, Wicked Things only runs for six issues, and COVID is partly to blame for that, unfortunately. And um, so I wasn't able to wrap up the actual murder plot the Miyamoto murder plot. I will wrap it up one way or another, but it will probably be, there'll be a break before I do. So all the like police station business is taken care of by the end of the sixth issue, but the Miyamoto plot, though there are clues and readers should be able to start to put it together 
from what is in those issues. And the themes of those issues are a strong indicator of what has happened. The By the end of the last page, well, what has happened? Well, Lottie's situation is resolved in one sense. The Miyamoto situation is not resolved, perhaps, to everybody's liking. Can I put it that way? No, that's a perfect way to put it. And But it, you, you did, with the character of Miyamoto-san and that plot line, you did have one of my favorite scenes in the entire series, where um, Claire and Miss Maki, Maki? Yeah. Okay, Miss Maki. That's three for three. I know. Wow. I'm, I'm having a good day today, huh? <laughs> Miss Maki gets a description of Lottie as she believes she saw it. And obviously, her depiction of it is wildly exaggerated. And, and I felt that was kind of an interesting scene because it kind of gives the reader in, the idea of, of, of how unreliable a witness can be and how much our own biases or witness bias can play into that. And, and I thought, was that why you put that in to show the readers the, the dangers of witness uh, testimony? It's, yes, it is both that, but also it betrays something else. There's like there's a piece of the puzzle missing that Lottie isn't aware of and that it's difficult to know exactly how to put this again without doing like a big spoiler. The fact that Mackie sees Lottie that way is a clue. That's all I can say. Okay. No, that's fair. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to ruin anything, but I, I think it also leads to the other big thing, which is with Claire and it kind of, without looking at giving away anything, it kind of tells me a little bit, the difficulty of being an individual who lives their entire life or a lot of their life around criminality mm. because the suspicion that Claire has without giving anything too much away does seem to be a suspicion of someone who's used to being around those who are not honest. Is that correct? Yes. yes. You know, like Claire has, she's got all the experience of having kind of been around Charlotte for like various mysteries. And so, yeah, she, you know, even though she is like the every woman. Yeah, exactly. You put it exactly right. Is there going to be a problem with the friendship because of these issues? I think so. I don't think it's easy to be friends with someone like Lottie. I think their kind of constant drive forward is both attractive and alienating, if that makes sense. You know, you're around someone who is brilliant and it's great to watch them work and to help them is rewarding. But also their life isn't like a normal person's life. And if you want to live your life, you have to remove yourself from them a little bit. And I think that's definitely an issue. Can someone who is used to being suspicious ever be truly trusting in your opinion? Well, I like the idea that there's room for stories where they learn to trust and then sometimes their trust is betrayed. I think that's really interesting. I think one of the things about Charlotte is Charlotte's never really, had, in any of the stories I've done, has never had like a romantic partner. And I think it's because she doesn't trust people. So I, I think that's absolutely at the heart of the character. Well, I, th like I, said, I think it was, it's a fantastic story. And it does sound like there's a chance that after those six issues are complete, that you're going to create further issues. Is that correct? Is there a timeline where you have that in mind? We don't. And Max, who draws the series is on a hiatus from comics at the moment. So until they return to active duty, there won't be any more wicked things. So I don't know exactly. I really want to do more issues. I have loads more stories, loads more cases. I know where the whole Miyamoto attempted murder plot goes. So I want to do more. It may be that I do more Charlotte stories. I can do them on the website if I want, but I wouldn't continue the wicked things. I don't think that would be fair to the readers or max to kind of 
go my own way with it. So there may be more Charlotte in the meantime, but until uh, the team is reunited, I don't think there'll be any more stories. What else are you working on then in the meantime? I'm working on Steeple, which is a series I've done for Dark Horse. That's it really at the moment. I've worked so hard over the last sort of three or four years. I'm taking, you know, I'm just trying to trying to limit my output a little bit because I've really, I've really rung myself out. <laughs> just coming up with ideas, you know, I, I did By Night for Boom. That was a 12 issue series. I did the Steeple series for Dark Horse. I did Wicked Things, which was very hard to write. I did 60 issues of Giant Days. I've, I kind of need, think I need to recharge my batteries maybe a little bit for a little while. So I'm just working on some steeple web comics. Hopefully those will be collected up next year. And apart from that, just waiting for inspiration to strike again. Well, I, I definitely hope to see more issues from Wicked Things. Like I said, I think it was a, a fantastically well-written story. And going back to what we mentioned earlier, I think it's the type of story that is needed more now with the amount, you know, with the amount of stress everyone's feeling. I think it's a nice comic book to relax and just enjoy oh thank you well i said that's all i can do i just want people to have a good time reading my comics so if you had a good time reading it i really appreciate the questions as well you obviously read it very carefully thank you uh, that, that's a good thing <laughs> well like i said I, i did find them to be a, pl a great pleasure and i do think it works for a wider audience than maybe you would consider if you just heard the storyline I think it's the audience is actually re that it can reach is a lot grander than that. Well, I'm looking forward to it coming out as a trade next year because I think when the six issues are assembled together, the kind of two part stories that I did for each of the you know the sets of two issues will make a lot more sense. And I think as a kind of six issue trade, I think I think it reads really well. So I'm excited for people to pick it up through bookstores. Well, that's fantastic. When that does happen, please let me know. We'll make sure we post the release dates on our website and you know, social media and spread as far as we possibly can. Will do. Well, thank you um, very much, Mr. Allison. It was great talking to you, and I really enjoyed reading your series, Wicked Things. Thank you very much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And if you don't mind, um, can you give us that bumper? Oh, sure. So hang on, let me just get this right. No worries. So, this is John Allison, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. Is that what I'm meant to say? you can say that you can also if you want give yourself a, a plug you know hi this is john allison writer of wicked things and you're listening to or wicked things from boom and you're listening to spoiler country oh sure i'm Allison, the writer of wicked things from boom studios and you're listening to spoiler country all right thank you so much sir you're fantastic oh thank you jeff really your questions are great you've you read it so carefully it's very flattering to hear someone pay such close attention to it Well, it was definitely my pleasure. And thank you for writing a story that was worth the time to read that closely. Oh, <laughs> Sometimes you read a story and you think, oh, my God, make this over. But it was very nice. That one was uh, worth reading. And I do appreciate it. Oh, no, no. Thank you. No, it's, it's what makes it worth doing when someone's uh, got that much out of it. Thank you so much. Have a very good um, day. All right. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jeff. Oh, you <laughs> I just got it. Got it. I was gonna, I was gonna <laughs> trip you up, but you know, got yeah, me. Yeah. So what you think? Got me. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I can't wait to check it out. Um, you know, Boom Studios, they kill it. You know what I mean? Yeah, they they always have stuff. a lot of cool stuff out there. So, yeah. you know, to have John Allison come on and and go over, uh, yeah, John Allison come on and do wicked things. Yeah, you know, you know what's funny about this? Cool. What's that? It was on our calendar. He's in he's in England, right? 
and it's on our calendar at during the daytime. I think it was like a, a 11 o'clock interview or something like that, and Jeff was doing it. So right. It was on, on our calendar. Well, my boss's name is Allison. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I kept seeing an, an invite or a, a counter thing for John Allison. I'm like, why do I have a meeting with my boss? Because I, I, I was with John Allison, like, one-on-one meeting. <laughs> right, right. So it, it tripped me up. Every time I saw it, I'm like, what the, oh, not me. It's it's a guy. It's talking to Jeff. Got it. Got it. <laughs> John Allison does not work here. <laughs> no, it's not working. He's not my boss, I don't think, at least. <laughs> He's got two cooler things to do than work there. Right. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Well, shoot. I hope everybody enjoyed that. Go check out Wicked Things. Tell your LCS that you really want to see this book uh, by Boom Studios and John Allison. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. It's perfect thing to, uh, to go get and sit back and read. If you enjoyed what you listened to, which I think you did because you're still here listening to me pontificate, then I implore you to head over to spoilerverse.com. And there you will find so many interviews, so many amazing shows, not only with this podcast, Spoiler Country, but also a plethora of other podcasts that hang their hat at SpoilerVerse.com. Yeah, so many podcasts. We've got so many. And we've got so many articles and reviews and previews and so much cool stuff that you need to go check out. And we've got a store. We have t-shirts and hoodies and face masks and all this cool stuff that you can fly as hell. coolest. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're the coolest kid in town, and you got to do it. you got to do it. Because not only will you look cool and fly as hell, but you help us out. You help us pay for all the bills that, that uh, it takes to, to run a site like our site and a, a podcast like ours and all the podcasts we have on the network. That's right. Um, so, so do that, and then, you know, we'll think you're pretty cool if you do that. Yep. There you guys go. All righty, then. I think we're done. I think that's a we show. We are done. That's a show. That is a show. <laughs> All right, guys, don't forget, Oceans of Podcasts, we are Cthulhu. Cthulhu compels you to do Open the mic. And read more. <laughs> Just now my voice is making you yeah, laugh right now. Yeah, playing. <laughs>